Welcome to This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. I'm Colleen Mitchell, and I've had type 1 diabetes for over 24 years. By day, I'm a process analyst in the power industry, and by night, I'm a writer, podcast host, and accountability coach. I'm passionate about type 1 diabetes education and showing others that this disease doesn't define me. I'm Jesse Tuggy, and I've had type 1 diabetes for about eight years now. I love hiking and painting, and I'm looking forward to working as an engineer after college. My diagnosis has inspired me to take control of my future and learn everything I can about it. Each week on the show, we'll talk about real life with type 1 diabetes, bring on cool people with connections to type 1, and above all, encourage you to understand that this disease doesn't have to hold you back. This isn't medical advice. This is life with type 1. Welcome to episode 54 of This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. Today, we're talking about living on your own with type 1 diabetes. And since Jessie is a teenager and has not lived on her own yet, this is more of a learning episode for her. And she has some questions for me at the end. Before we dive in, we have an announcement. This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. That's right. We're starting to accept sponsorships for the podcast so that we can continue providing it to our listeners for free. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters with amazing sponsorship opportunities like this one. We will only ever promote brands, products, services, and companies that we either use ourselves or believe in enough to share them with you. Our goal is to keep our sponsors related to the topics we discuss or sponsors we think will benefit you as a type 1 diabetic. Find out more about Podcorn by visiting www.podcorn.com. I'm up for the win of the week, and my 30-day average total daily dose of insulin is down to 20.38 units. This is like really low for me. I've been on an elimination diet for about a month now, and it appears that it's driving my insulin use down and my blood sugars are really stable and I'm also losing a little bit of weight again. So wins on all counts. Jesse, what is the fail this week? So my fail this week kind of has something to do with traveling and being slightly underprepared. So this last week I went to Eastern Washington to check out Eastern Washington University which is like a backup school plan kind of thing. Also, you know, in the top couple and also to spend time with family that I have over there. So that was a lot of fun, but I went on a vacation two weeks prior to this and I thought, well, I'll just keep everything packed. I'll I'll put my insulin in the fridge and I put it in the back of my mind that I needed to repack my insulin. Now I didn't run out of insulin, but I got uncomfortably low with how much was in the vial and how much was left over. But you know, this just goes to show that being overprepared is being is better than being underprepared, which I felt like I was. And I was very much watching what I ate and seeing how many uh, units I was using, which drove my anxiety very high the last three days we were there. So it was very interesting to see how uncomfortably low I could get while being away from my home, which was weird. And I didn't really like, it wasn't fun. (laughs) So that's a a good reminder that when you go traveling to pack at least one and a half times what you'll need, preferably two. I usually do two. So I also have the hack this week and it's pretty simple. Get one of those bedside organizers that you can like slide underneath your mattress and just hang off the side and you can stash flow snacks, your meter kit and other things that you might need in the middle of the night if you go low or if you go high. So today we're talking about living on your own with type 1 diabetes. 
We covered a lot of things in the episodes about college, but more often than not, in college, you're living with roommates. After college is when it's way more likely that you're actually on your own, and that carries some different risks and benefits than living with roommates. I personally think that everyone should experience living on their own for at least a year just to get in touch with themselves and figure out how to operate as an independent human. As type 1 diabetics, though, it's normal to have reservations about living alone because of those risks that can come from not having someone else around if you go into a severe hypo or a partner who's there to take care of you when you're sick. So here's just a brief outline of what we're going to cover in this episode. Pre-planning before you move, things to do every day, emergencies, mental and emotional health, insurance and suppliers, self-sufficiency, including finances, exercising alone, and buying food for one, and your support team. Now, diabetesforecast.org has a great acronym that you can remember, and it's SAFETY, S-A-F-E-T-Y. S is for secure a plan. Know what you'll do in the event of a high or a hypo. Have your low snacks by your bed. Know how to use glucagon if you need to. Or if you don't want to use the red kits of glucagon, you can get Vaccini, which is nasal glucagon, and it works really fast. And also have a backup plan if your pump dies or your insulin goes bad. So my pump has uh, died actually not once, but a couple times. And both of them were from battery or charging errors on my pump. And both times I was able to get it working again before they had to ship a replacement, but I did have to get replacements shipped. So that's a good idea. That's that's a case where it's a really good idea to have a backup plan. I didn't really have a backup plan other than using short-acting insulin through syringes or by using a neighbor's backup mini med pump. Cause I, you know, apparently my stuff died faster than his did. A is for always have an emergency contact and health information on hand. You can keep a card in your wallet with your doctor's contact information. You can wear a medical alert ID, and you can also set up your phone's emergency information menu with your emergency contacts, what insulin you're on, and that you have type 1, and even your pharmacy contact information. So we've talked before about our medical alerts. I used to wear a bracelet, and I also used to wear a necklace. But since neither of those work for my lifestyle now, I am going to be getting an alert tattoo soon. That has not happened yet. F is for, first and foremost, check your blood sugar regularly. It's so important to know what your blood sugar is at all times. For this, we highly recommend that every type 1 diabetic get a CGM or a flash glucose monitor. Options include the Dexcom G6, which I wear, the Medtronic Guardian sensors, which Jesse wears, the Freestyle Libre sensors, and the Eversense sensor implant, which we actually know the least about. Both the Dexcom G6 and the Medtronic Guardian sensors integrate with pumps. Dexcom integrates with Tandem and Medtronic with its own is it? I think it's not just the 670G, it's also six, uh, is it 530G? So they have different series of pumps. So they have the Minimed, now they've got the 670. I've got the 670G. They're coming out with another one, but each, I believe it, once you have a sensor, you can get upgrades on the sensor and it'll read to a different pump. But it has to be, they only read to like the mini med pumps. Right, right. Yeah. So the Medtronic sensors only work with Medtronic, but yeah. Dexcom G6 does stand alone and so does the Freestyle Libre. The E in safety is for exercise smart. Check your glucose before and after your exercise and ideally also check in, in the middle. You should carry low snacks with you. And if you're on a longer exercise, you should take water with you too. 
And be aware that lows following exercise don't always happen immediately. You could drop six or more hours after completing exercise. It's so much fun. Not. This is just another reason why it's important to always check your numbers before going to sleep, especially. T is for talk with others. Set up a support system and talk to someone daily. If you're really worried about being by yourself, have a daily call with a friend or someone nearby who can come over to administer glucagon if you're unable to do it yourself. So you should, for this person, make sure that they, first of all, can get in your house, so a key or a passcode. And second of all, actually know how to administer glucagon so you've shown them how to do it and walked them through it. And then the why for safety is your goal range. Having a range that you're comfortable with and is easy to stay inside is key. I know a lot of people have their range set from something like 80 to 180. I've seen plenty of people uh, have their range go from 100 to like 200 or even higher. Personally, my range is 80 to 140, but that's just my personal preference. And it's also good to know that if you're having frequent lows, you actually might need to have a higher range. For my range, it's pretty easy to stay inside that because first of all, I eat low carb. And second of all, I have Tandem's control IQ technology. So that just keeps me nice and flat. Pre-planning before you move. So before you even move to your new place, it's a good idea to tell your doctor that you're moving. You should find a new pharmacy and then also update your address with everyone, your doctor, your insurance company, and especially your suppliers for your pump and your CGM supplies. You don't want to get to your new place, especially if it's in another city or a state, and then get stuck waiting for your pharmacy to be able to supply your insulin. You want to set all of that up ahead of time. You should also set up your family members, friends, or a doctor with a follow app if you're using a CGM. If someone else can see your blood sugars, then that can be a safety net if you crash during the night and don't wake up on your own. But the alarm might wake somebody else up on the other end, and then they can call you or call for an ambulance. Things you should do every day. Check your blood sugar every night before you go to bed. That, that seems like common sense, but a lot of people don't, uh, don't check their blood sugars before they go to sleep. Another thing to check is your active insulin in case there's a lot on board and you need to wake yourself up in the middle of the night. You should use alarms on your phone or you know, just a regular alarm clock if you don't wake up to CGM alarms. Another time, a good time to do this is if you've had alcohol and you're, you don't trust yourself to wake yourself up in the middle of the night, you would want to set an alarm just to make sure. Also, every day, if you feel like it, check in with a buddy, a friend, a family member, or a neighbor. Maybe have a, a daily walking partner that you can just talk to. You should also test as soon as you wake up whenever possible. For me, I roll out of bed, turn off my alarm, check my blood sugar. And that's important for me because I turn off my insulin to go shower. And I've recently figured out that if I look at my basal history, then I can see what control IQ has been doing. And then I can better guess what to do about my insulin going into the shower and coming out. So I can either not give any insulin or give a little bit more than they otherwise would just because I know what that basal history is. You should also keep a consistent wake-up and bedtime schedule even on the weekends. I know people don't like this advice, but it's actually really useful because then you get into the habit and every day is... I mean, I don't want to say every day is the same, but it, every day is a lot easier to get through if you have a consistent schedule. And it's also important because if you have a pump with a pre-programmed basal profile, if you sleep beyond your usual wake-up time, that could affect your blood sugars, especially if you forget to change it to your weekend profile. There's an old business adage that says what gets measured gets managed. So make sure you're paying attention to your blood sugars, your total daily dose of insulin, your basal rates, and yes, your body weight. 
With diabetes, everything is connected. So illness and emergencies. Wear a CGM. That's probably going to be our advice for a lot of stuff is wear a CGM. Have a follow app set up. Set alarms during the night. All of these help with nighttime lows. And also if you're hypo unaware. And that just means if you don't feel a low coming on. If you're sick and you have large ketones at home and they're not coming down, be prepared to call 911 and get yourself to a hospital. If you go into DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis by yourself, it will be very difficult to call for help. The only two times I had a seizure was when I was seven. Both of, and both of those were low blood sugar seizures. But there's no way that I would have been able to get, get out of them without my parents. When I was growing up, I was told that if my blood sugar is over 250 to check for ketones. I still think they, they tell kids that. And that's probably good advice because being over 250 sucks anyway. But when I was a kid, I never did that. Just going to be honest. I checked for ketones when I was over 300 or over 400. And not just one or two tests in a row, but for several hours. This was usually in college, by the way. And I also uh, probably wouldn't check ketones unless I actually felt sick. Urine ketone measurement sticks from your pharmacy, but in my experience, you will probably never use all of them before they expire. I have thrown out so many boxes and containers of urine ketone strips that I, I can't even count them. But if you want to spring for it, a more accurate testing method is a blood ketone meter, which we actually use at Panther Camp, but the strips are ungodly expensive. So there's some trade-offs. I think the strips are like a dollar a piece. It's ridiculous. So we had to test for ketones one time when I was at Panther Camp. I was a counselor at the time and my pump was just not, my site didn't work. Anyways, I remember us testing and there, there was so much blood. You had to use like three times the amount you usually would to test your blood sugar. I absolutely hated it. That's my, just my personal preference. I hate those things and they're so expensive. And, oh, just, that, that's all. That's just what I want to add. <laughs> Probably a good addition. So yeah, another, another trade-off is that it requires a lot more blood than you would need to check your blood sugar. Now, if you're dealing with illness, especially severe illness, make it easy on yourself to access food, low snacks, insulin, water, and make sure your phone is nearby in case you need to call for help. And if you think you'll be throwing up a lot, then keep a bucket by your, by your bed or just camp out in the bathroom. I remember when I was a kid, I would be hugging the porcelain th throne is, uh, I think, what my mom called it, or uh, praying to the porcelain god. When you're sick, you will need extra electrolytes because you're throwing stuff up. So keep those on hand as well. You can probably do like a Gatorade Zero, or uh, they have all sorts of sugar free electrolyte drinks out there now, but I use electrolyte drops from Keto Chow, and you just drop them into whatever you're drinking, and it becomes an electrolyte drop. I actually put them on my salads now. It's kind of interesting. This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. Podcasting is a fun way to spend our time, but it also costs a bit of money. Bringing on sponsors means it's easier to continue providing free content for our listeners. We've never had ads before on the show, and with Podcorn, we're confident that the brands we bring on are useful not just for us as your hosts, but more importantly, useful to you as our listeners. Most podcast sponsorship networks require a huge audience just to sign up, but Podcorn is built for podcasts of all sizes. We get transparency with brands, creative freedom, and protection for our work. We'll only ever promote brands we use or believe in that are relevant to the things we talk about and relevant to your life as a type 1 diabetic. Brands we work with may fall under a wide swath of topics, such as health, wellness, mental health, self-improvement, self-care, and so much more. 
Here's a huge thank you to Podcorn for sponsoring us as we take this next step in our podcasting journey. 20% of all sponsorship income goes to the Diabetes Association of Pierce County in support of Panther Day Camp. If you're a podcaster, find out how you can start partnering with sponsors by visiting podcorn.com slash podcasters. And now back to the show. Mental and emotional health. Living on your own can be lonely. I actually enjoyed it. And I'm actually glad I lived on my own before getting married. But if you're feeling like you're isolated and there's no one there for you, getting a pet can actually really help. There's nothing quite like a cat forcing herself onto your lap in the morning or you know, a wet doggy nose just pushing against your hand for pets. I've had both. Petting animals is a proven source of stress reduction and it absolutely helps with mental health. It's helped with mine. If you can swing it and it works for your lifestyle, get a diabetes alert dog. You can listen to episode 47 for more information on diabetes alert dogs. But if you're living by yourself, having an alert dog means you've got a built-in extra layer of support that isn't human, but you know is extra cuddly. Alert dogs can be trained to call for help from your smartphone, which is pretty cool. You can have a paw print unlock your phone. If you ever feel like your mental or emotional health is suffering from living on your own, especially with type 1 diabetes, please seek help from either a therapist or a coach and make sure your doctor knows. Now we're on to insurance and suppliers. When you're living on your own, it's most likely that you're also in a full-time job and fully responsible for your own insurance and getting your supplies delivered on time. Now, hopefully your employer provides good health insurance, which makes things a lot easier. But if you don't, you'll be finding health insurance on the open market. Now, I don't know much about the healthcare exchange, but I do know that it's really expensive to get good coverage for type 1 diabetes. When you're living by yourself, you have to do all these things. You can't rely on your parents to take care of the insurance or reordering your supplies or making sure there's insulin in your butter compartment. I mean, let's be real. No diabetic actually puts butter in the butter compartment. It can sometimes be a real struggle dealing with insurance companies and suppliers. You might end up spending a lot of time on the phone with them. I have. It's ideal to keep a calm, level head when you're talking to them, but it's understandable if you end up in tears of frustration because of all the circles you're running. I've been there. It sucks. I was once on a three-way call with my mom and the insurance company, and I was in tears. But we all have to deal with it. And once we're adults, we can't ask for parents for help that much anymore. And there are no perfect insurance companies. There will always be some kind of problem with your suppliers or with your pharmacy or with the insurance company. We just have to expect it. So stick it out. The more you're willing and able to fight for yourself, the better off you'll be. Make sure you check your EOBs which are your explanations of benefits that are sent by your insurance company to make sure that things are being coded and charged correctly. And if you ever get a bill that doesn't look right, call about it. Make sure they build the right code. If you have a primary and a secondary insurance like I did before I turned 26, make sure everyone is billing both your primary and your secondary. You want to maximize that coverage. And sometimes the service will only charge your primary and then not go through secondary. Or maybe they'll charge secondary first and then get the whole amount kicked back to you because they didn't charge primary and then just nobody talks to each other and nobody knows what's going on. It seriously sucks to deal with, but that can happen and we have to be prepared for it. Because if we don't deal with it, then we're the ones who end up paying for it. Diabetes is already expensive. So the more that we can make sure that insurance is covering what they're supposed to cover, the better off we'll be and the less stress we'll have. Self-sufficiency. The last one we're going to talk about before we get to Jesse's questions. 
When I think of self-sufficiency, I think of being financially stable first and foremost. But when you're self-sufficient, it also means that you take care of yourself across all spectrums. This, this includes exercising on your own, buying and cooking for one, and making sure that you're prepared for emergencies by having some kind of medical alert and emergency contact information available on your phone. You'll have to budget for your medical supplies. With my insurance, I have a flexible spending account, which means that every November during my company's open enrollment, I set aside a certain amount for my paycheck that goes directly to medical expenses. But an FSA doesn't cover everything. I can't pay for my massage appointments with it. I also can't pay for vitamins and supplements from that account, which means that I need a medical spending category in my budget. My husband and I use YNAB, which is the acronym for You Need a Budget. And it's been really amazing at keeping us financially aware. I do have a referral code in the show notes if you want to try YNAB and also get a month free if you sign up for a subscription. So most companies also offer a high deductible health plan, which comes with a health savings account. So this is completely separate from an FSA. And in my experience, type 1 diabetics should probably not go the HSA route because it's a high deductible and we have a lot of money to spend on... Well, we don't have a lot of money to spend. We have to spend a lot of money. There is a difference. We have to spend a lot of money on medical supplies. So I have a low deductible plan, which means our premiums are slightly higher. But it also means that insurance kicks in faster and we don't spend as much overall. So I don't do a high deductible health plan because I don't want to shell out $5,000 for supplies before insurance kicks in for the rest. It just doesn't make feasible. It's not fiscally responsible for my family. Making sure that you're living below your means means that you won't be as affected when emergencies come up. Emergency funds are important for everyone but they're doubly important for type 1 diabetics. We really need that extra safety net in case something goes awry. Like if we break an insulin vial and insurance won't cover it. Those things are breakable, guys. Don't drop them. The safety acronym at the beginning of this episode talked about exercising smart. But to recap, bring low snacks with you. Check your number before, during, and after. Pay attention to your active insulin and make sure you have your phone with you if you need to call for help. Now, when you're buying and cooking for one, it can be easy to buy whatever you want and just pig out. But processed foods, sugar, and flour are the enemy of diabetics. The only straight-up sugar I eat is my low snacks, Smarties, and I eat them sparingly. A good tip is to shop the perimeter of stores because that's where the fresh food is. Produce, dairy, meat, eggs, those are all on the perimeter. Do your best to stay away from the aisles unless you need things like spices or canned vegetables or more preserved things, but still low carb. And then lastly, your support team. That includes your friends and your neighbors. And yeah, meet your neighbors. I still haven't met my neighbors where we live, but that's a really good idea to meet your neighbors. Make friends uh, where you're moving to. You should also stay in contact with your old friends. So don't give up those relationships. Stay in contact with your family and stay in touch with your, with your old endocrinologist if you haven't gotten a new one yet where you're going. You want to keep the connections around you strong and just know that you, you have a support network, even if it's online. Even though you're living on your own, you're not actually truly alone. The entire diabetes community is here for you and we're just one second click on the internet away. Who should I call first in a diabetic medical emergency? Like, Should it be my parents, my doctor, like my normal doctor, or should it be another emergency contact? Is this before or after you call 911? 
after. <laughs> you're right at the hospital. You're all hooked up to wires and everything. Who should I be calling? Probably your parents. Okay. For you, I would... If, if I was you, I would be calling my parents. If it was me, I would be calling my husband. Yeah. Yeah. Just the most important person or people in your life are the people you should be calling after you get to the hospital and after you've already called 911. Okay. So how did you decide where to keep all your diabetic supplies at home? You mean just like where I store them? Yeah. Like why did you decide that place was a good place? So I'm currently sitting in my office and my diabetes supplies are on the right-hand shelf inside our office closet, which is right in front of me. And I picked that because it's at a convenient height and we spend most of our time in the office. So this is where I change my set and this is where I change my sensor. So it's just easy to have them right there. And they're also... Because they're in the closet, they're out of sight and they don't really get in the way. You could also use a drawer or a box under your bed. It just depends on what's most convenient for you and how you like organizing things. And then should I get a PO box while I'm moving? Like say for college, I'm moving across the state. Should I get a PO box while I'm in college? That actually never crossed my mind because everywhere I lived in college, they had package delivery. It was either to my apartment door or it was held at the uh, dorm office. So I never had a problem with packages being delivered. But if you're like extra, extra paranoid, I suppose you could get a PO box. But it's important to know that for a lot of shipments like insulin, they will not ship it to a PO box. I did not know that. Yeah, it's perishable. And I'm pretty sure they do not ship to perishable. So they don't ship perishable things to PO boxes. So whenever you're checking out from your supplier or your pharmacy, Sometimes they might have a warning on there that says, no, we do not ship to PO boxes. I should check that. <laughs> With that, is it easy to change your mailing address for insurance or other medical-related items? Um, relatively. It depends on if you have an online portal that you can update your information through. If you don't, then you might have to sit on hold for a few minutes to get through to your insurance company and then have them updated on their side. Okay. It's pretty painless, but just make sure you have some time set aside if, in case you do get put on hold. Yeah. And then outside of my family, who should be a good emergency contact? Someone you trust. That would be Colleen, just to let everybody know. <laughs> <laughs> and then what do I need to know when it comes to like living with cats or dogs and keeping my diabetic supplies out of reach? Well, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because... Our cat likes going in the office closet, but she is also not, I wouldn't say she's not, she's not tall enough because she can easily jump places, but there's no really easy way to jump onto that shelf. So she's never gotten into them. Usually we chase her out of the closet before too long. When I was living at home, my diabetes supplies were, I remember they were up on a gorilla shelf in the studio for a long time. And at some point when we moved the gorilla shelf, we found really ancient bear test strips unopened, <laughs> super expired. They were the kind that you, it was one strip per like foil packet. And then you had to peel the packet open, 
Do you remember those? Oh my God. I, oh my God. I never use those on a regular basis, but they would always send them like as a, like a, like a tester. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Those were the really old bear meters and my bear meters actually had a little plastic bear that was a little holder. So I had a bear meter inside a bear holder and that was the 30 second countdown, which was the longest countdown of my life in the middle of the night when I'm checking my blood sugar. But yeah, we you know, found really, really old test strips back there. But the point is on that tangent was they were always high up enough that animals couldn't get into them or they were in a drawer tucked away, just out of sight, out of reach. And then what would be my first steps if like say I got home and my house got house or apartment got broken into and most of my diabetic supplies was either broken or stolen? That is a really good question. My instinct would be to, well, first call the police because you were broken into, file a police report, and then also call your insurance company. This is me talking off of the top of my head. I have not done any research on this, but it would seem to me that if you have a police report, then it would be really, well, not easy, but um, maybe simpler to file a claim with your insurance to get all of that re reimbursed or sent back to you. Cool. That was all of the questions that I had this time. <laughs> Diabetes Spotlight this week is on a study looking at the impact of lockdown on glycemic control in type 1 diabetics. And this is a quote. Data regarding hypoglycemic and hyperglycemic episodes, diabetic ketoacidosis, insulin dose missed, regular glucose monitoring, dietary compliance, physical activity, and hospitalization during the phase of lockdown was all recorded. Average blood glucose and HbA1c of lockdown phase was compared with readings of pre-lockdown phase. Out of 52 patients, 36.5% had hyperglycemia, that's high blood sugar, and 15.3% had hypoglycemia, that's low blood sugar. Insulin dose was missed in 26.9% of cases. Glucose monitoring not done routinely in 36.5% and 17.4% were not diet compliant during lockdown. Average blood glucose during the the lockdown phase was 276.9 plus or minus 64.7 MGDL as compared with 212.3 plus or minus 57.9 MGDL during pre-lockdown phase. The mean HbA1c value of lockdown was 10 plus or minus 1.5%, which was a lot higher than pre-lockdown, which was 8.8 plus or minus 1.3%. And the difference was statistically significant. The study concluded that glycemic control of type 1 patients has worsened mainly due to non-availability of insulin and glucose strips during the lockdown period. There is a need for preparedness in future so that complications can be minimized, end quote. And I did add a little little bit in there. But this data is actually really scary to me, primarily the before and the after of the average blood glucose levels. And just to reiterate, before the lockdown, the average was around 212. After the lockdown, like in the middle of it, the average was 276. That is astonishing to me. And it's really good that this study brought this information to light because not only were we not prepared for a pandemic, We were, and it appears we still aren't prepared to handle our diabetes under these strange new circumstances. If you are in these groups where your blood sugars are this high, I implore you, please do your best to get them under control. 
All right. So our question for y'all, our lovely audience this week, do you live alone with type 1 diabetes? What are your hacks and tips and advice for nervous type 1 diabetics to live on their own? Like me, please help. Send your tips, send your guidance, please. Uh, Let us know in the comments and yeah. That's it for this episode of This is Type 1. You can find the show notes at inspiredforward.com slash episode 54. That's the number 54. And if you have an idea for an upcoming episode or a guest request, please leave us a comment or send an email. You can get straight to our podcast page by going to thisistype1.com. Our music is by Joseph McDade. Are you having trouble adjusting to living on your own with diabetes? Having a life coach means that you have someone dedicated to helping you solve all your problems one week at a time, including the challenge of adjusting to life on your own. If you want to find out if we're a good fit, Schedule the free 60-minute coaching consult at inspiredforward.com slash coaching. Even if we don't work together, you'll come away with a clear understanding of what you need to do to solve your problems. I'm on all social media as at inspiredforward. And our email is colleen at inspiredforward.com. I'm on Instagram as at jj underscore crystal kat. Please feel free to send me questions or comments you have about the show or about type 1 diabetes. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends, family, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, since that really helps other people find us. And be sure to listen next week when we talk with Adam Brown, current contributor to and former senior editor of Diatribe. Adam shares his thoughts on mental health, exercise, and his favorite parts of his book, Bright Spots and Landmines. This is an episode you won't want to miss. Remember, you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.